We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded as the first storytellers, the first communities and the first creators of Australian culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 4 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. In this episode, I interview Dr. Isabella Bauer, who isn't a registered architect, but is a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of South Australia. Isabella's work explores whether we can improve brain functioning and mental health through built environment design. During her PhD, she investigated how modifiable interior design characteristics of buildings impact processes we use in daily life, such as perception, attention, and emotional regulation. Let's jump in. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Isabella, on the Hearing Architecture podcast. It's really great to have you. How are you going? Good. My pleasure. I'm really excited to be a part of this. Yeah, thank you so much. We're really excited to have you. It's not often that we actually get a uh, person who's been working in the architecture space for a long time who's now become somewhat of a brain expert. So, you know, it's nice to have you have you on the podcast to talk about your area of special, specialization. So, do you want to tell us a little bit about your background when you were working in the OVGA, I guess sort of advocating for what architects did there and what propelled you into this space? Yeah. So, I, as you said, I I think I've had quite a different background than most have, and so it's fantastic to talk to people about it so they realize it is a career path and you can kind of pioneer your own career. I started off doing a Bachelor of Design and Masters of Architecture. And my first job was working in the Office of the Victorian Government Architect. And I couldn't have asked for a better first job for the exposure of how important the built environment is and policy and realizing that it's not just about becoming a practitioner, that you can become an advocate and a policymaker, but also that you can become a researcher about the built environment too. So when I was working in the OBGA, we were looking at what good design is and we did a series of publications, not not your traditional academic publications, I will say that. Um, I learned that, that architecture publications and outputs are far different than science publications and outputs as well. Yeah, one probably more of like a marketing side of things and the other one's like very, very... (laughs) (laughs) So I apologise that my research outputs these days aren't as visual. I try and illustrate them as best I can. I feel like it's the superpower I got from doing architecture that Mm. I'm really great at visualising things and doing beautiful figures for presentations, which my science peers perhaps don't have that same advantage that I have for communicating from architecture. Mm. That's a bit of a side deviation there. (laughs) So we were looking at built environment design, what good design is, and we had a series of publications. I thought, wow, this is really fascinating. We need really good evidence to be able to justify the importance of design. We know that good design is important, but sometimes it's really difficult to convince other people unless there's some sort of health or economic and other kind of gains that we can clearly articulate to others as to why it is important we invest the time in designing good built environments. And it does seem like common sense. We spend 80 to 90% of our time within the built environment. So to me, when I realized there wasn't actually that much research out there on the impact of the built environment on our physical health and psychological health, mainly psychological, because we'd started doing a bit more research of urban planning, transport, staying active within the built environment and how those kind of things are really good for our physical health. But then in terms of mental health and understanding how a space might be affecting cognitive processes like perception and attention and concentration, there really wasn't anything out there. And I was like, oh, this is mm-hmm. this is a problem. We, we need this evidence. One, so we're designing these spaces to optimize these functions, but two, also so we can invest in architecture and say, hey, it's really important that we have architects looking at this and building the spaces that we're spending all our time in. Yeah. And I guess from an advocacy point of view, when you're speaking to people who aren't architects or working in the design space, some people, and you can totally correct me if I'm wrong here, that some of the people who aren't mm. who aren't design professionals, do they feel like you're advocating just for people who might have better taste or might think that they know more about what people need in, in you know, their, their built environment? Yeah, when I came into this space, I I know people don't understand the term architecture as well. So there are a lot of people when I said, oh, I came from architecture, they're like, 
oh, so brain circuitry and like <laughs> the connections within the brain and like, oh no, like the buildings. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so, so there wasn't that much of a understanding within the kind of cognitive neuroscience or, or science realm of architects, mm. and that was a bit of a problem. Sorry, might have to rephrase that one. I don't think I understood it. <laughs> well, okay, I guess so. In the work that I do at the institute, um, yeah. we do a bit of policy and advocacy work, and sometimes when we're advocating for the role that architects can play in the built environment, mm. there might be some people who are saying, "Well, that's kind of your opinion." as an architect, it, there's not really a proof that you can give me that architect design buildings are better. That's just, you know, arch, architects thinking that they might have a have better taste than other people or thinking that things need to look just nicer. So I guess for coming back to my original question, it's, yeah, so when you're working at the OVGA, when you're having sort of these, these advocacy conversations, did it seem like some of those the the conversations were a bit hard to explain the benefits of architecture. It was because it seemed like architects were almost trying to say, you know, we know better than you and that's just because our, our opinion, we think our opinion's more valuable in a way. I didn't see that with OBGA and it was really fantastic because a lot of those publications were backed up by references. But what I did notice was that there just wasn't that much literature and references to pull off. Mm. And when mm. you did find those references, they were based on very small sample sizes or a study that was run such a long time ago and th there really wasn't enough evidence to build off. Mm. But I have come across that argument around aesthetics and aesthetic style. And, I, yeah, it comes down to this, what's the definition of good design? And I think that's going to be different for everyone. There may not be one definition that everyone holds at the moment. Mm. For me, it certainly has to be something that's supportive of your physical and psychological health it also shouldn't just be for humans ideally like it is a good thing for the environment as a whole and the ecosystems that it sits within and that would that comes more down into the environment and all of that too but at least for the human occupants too I think it needs to have a supportive role on our health yeah absolutely so yeah, I can totally understand that then you'd want to want to go into the science realm to sort of have more to create even more research that then people in the advocacy and policy side can actually draw from. So, yeah, what what did you decide to do next? What was the next stage in your in your path? So, I was, I was pretty naive going down this road. I finished my master's degree and still didn't even understand that a PhD you required a PhD to do research. And that's just because my master's degree and undergraduate had been really focused, and I think this is an architecture thing, quite focused on industry and going into practice rather than the career path of becoming a researcher. I started doing some research assistant work at Melbourne University, looking at healthcare environments and education environments. And that really interested me because of the the fact that with education and healthcare, you're kind of dealing with either developing or vulnerable minds. And I thought, oh, that's where I think the built environment would make more of a difference rather than just in kind of residential settings. So that sparked my interest. And I started volunteering at the same time at the Royal Children's Hospital, which beautiful design. I'd been very fortunate in my life not to spend much time within hospital environments, but I was fascinated by how they worked. I'm like, how do I get into a hospital to, to understand how it works? And so I started volunteering in the emergency department, which was just amazing because you get to see behind the scenes of how everything works, but also just the distractions within that space having this beautiful fish tank and where the fish are always moving and doing different things and it invokes children's imagination and, and they're like, oh, there's a whale in there. Like, sure, there's a whale in there. <laughs> but um, it's so much better than just having a static painting that doesn't change. And, yes, you might see different things within the painting, but I thought the integration of nature and the, the meerkats as well, just having things that move, that was brilliant. Mm. So that was a fantastic experience and it really got me excited about the difference that architecture can make to people. Mm. So then I had to take it to the next step. I'm like, what What am I going to do? And the psychological side really interested me. I, I ended up just spending time walking past on my way to work, always the Neuroscience Institute. I'm like, oh, how do I get in there? Like how do I just <laughs> become a neuroscientist? Because I had a network that was just architects mm. because I'd, I'd just been around architects. And I, I kind of just jumped in the deep end and I, I signed up for a PhD 
doing my own topic, which was understanding the neurophysiological effect of the built environment. Hadn't scaled it down too much further from there. And then I asked, I went to the Florey Institute of Neuroscience and Mental Health, and they do a PhD coursework in neuroscience program. And I said, look, I'm from architecture. Can I audit this course just to learn? And they're like, well, we haven't had anyone from architecture before, but sure, why not? And so I did that. And that was a fantastic induction into all the different methods and the different theories. And it was just, it also opened up a network to me of different people. So I made friends through that course that I I stayed throughout the PhD with. And that really helped me understand what their workload was like and what types of research they were doing. And so while I started the PhD in architecture, I ended up right at the end moving across to psychology, but I was always between the two spaces as well. So I was trying to juggle both, had the network in architecture, didn't in psychology or neuroscience, but started building that up more and more, getting involved and volunteering within those spaces of joining committees. So then again, I I met more people that helped me understand their research. Yep. In the PhD, you're, you're learning a new area regardless. So it it didn't matter too much that I didn't know because everyone doesn't know. It's just not doubting yourself and being okay and having the humility to know that you don't know. There's so much you don't know and you just need to keep on learning every day and challenging yourself. Yeah. Wow. That sounds, yeah, definitely very interesting because you had such a a well-rounded background in architecture and you'd been working in the OVGA. (laughs) So yeah, I can understand that the the network would have been in sort of one of those architectural silos that we sometimes talk about about in architecture but that would have been so great I came from architecture too because I wore a lot of black Um, (laughs) and you can see today I've started integrating color back into my life yeah it's it's lovely to say that you're sort of making yourself very summery now not just in the in the wintry (laughs) doldrums of the black world that architects live in there with their fashion so yeah that's that's great and so I guess in that sort of space of, of wellness in architecture where architecture when it's designed to allow for better natural daylight or natural ventilation or also having other ways to stimulate your brain like the meerkats or the amazing aquarium. Is that sort of stimulating the release of endorphins? I'm not sure exactly what what you would do then to measure how the, the kind of the benefits of that would actually help wellness. What do they actually measure when um, architects or architecture has been designed well for people's well-being? It's a great question and I'm going to go back and and clarify and say with my PhD, (laughs) like, right, so the built environment Mm. is so complex. There are so many factors happening. Mm. There's people and interactions with other people or with animals as well. There's light coming in, there's acoustics, noise, all of these other variables. And I was like, can we just measure design Mm. by itself? Can we design an experiment that is just so simple where we cut back and just understand if a design element makes a difference. Can we even measure that? Because that wasn't even established at the start as to whether we could understand if there's a difference in changing the colour of a room or changing the scale of a room and whether we'd be able to record differences in brain, body and self-reported activity. Mm. So that's where I started, which is a very scientific approach too, is that kind of empirical, let's reduce it out and remove all of these other external variables because you can run experiments where you have complex environments. But for me, and perhaps this is just a little bit of how my brain works and my personality, while it's interesting to go, oh, the natural environment's different than an urban environment and there's different brain activity, I want to know why. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to know what it is that makes a difference. And it's it's like a building block approach of playing with building blocks. You just want to take one building block at a time and start building it up and going, oh, so if we just change the scale of the space, what happens within the brain? And then if we throw something else in, how does that affect the brain? Right. So, yeah, so is this with, with regards to your research, was it primarily about measuring the brain's activity in relation to scale to start off with? Was that the first building block? It was, mm. yes. So I also used virtual reality rather than a real built environment for this too because of the level of control I could have over the space. So the room where I conducted the experiments had no natural light. It was acoustically sound. The temperature, I was I was recording the indoor environmental quality parameters within that space as well. And using what's called the cave automatic virtual environment, so it's not a headset that you put on your eyes. It's actually being within the middle of this kind of box cube space. It's like a three by three meter where you've got projector screens around you. So 
to the sides below you, then I changed the environment those people were in. So what I did change was just the scale of the space. And when I was trying to decide, well, how, how far do I go in stripping this back? Like what makes a built environment a built environment? Yeah. <laughs> go into all these circles of like, oh, dear, like am I going too far? Am I going not far enough with it? I chose a door because a door is something that's very standard within a built environment. We also have the standards as well for those internal residential doors. I'm like, well, I can control that. I know what a regular size door will be that participants will recognize. And then I can make that larger or smaller. But that only gives the perception of, of something in front of you. And what I wanted to have was depth as well. Mm. So I added a chair into the experiment. So it was simply a indoor room that had a door a closed door, by the way, as well, because people are like, oh, is, is it an open door? And then what are you going to look out onto? I'm like, no, nope, closed door, mm-hmm. nothing more than that. And a chair. So you had that perception of depth as well. But when modeling the chair, I was really picking like, well, it can't look like a kitchen chair or it can't look like a lounge room chair because then that's going to give context into the experiment. People might think about their memories within oh, those wow. spaces as well. Mm. Because I don't want to be testing the impact of context, like being in a hospital room, because that might trigger negative emotions. I just wanted to understand if it was scale. So I, I changed the scale and I also changed the color of the walls. So I changed them from white to blue. Blue I chose, again, because we're so contextually primed to color as well. You think of traffic lights, you think of warning signs too. But what you probably won't think of when you're thinking of like the dangerous ones is a blue sign. And that's because of the way the eyes perceive color and the Mm. wavelengths. Blue's not as good as a color like red or yellow for being able to detect quickly and clearly. So as a result, blue is not used to indicate something too dangerous. So I was like, well, at least we have the least amount of priming to the color blue. So I'll use that. And then when trying to use blue, so when you think about color, you've got hue, you've got saturation and you've got lightness. So all these other variables to play with as well. I thought, well, the most scientific thing to do would be a pure blue, which is just bang on like i'm trying to think of how to describe it now you better use (laughs) your fan deck skills from architecture (laughs) it's a very blue blue and when when you produce that blue it's so surreal Mm. It, it has no level of realness no one would paint their room that type of blue so I was like oh okay well that's not going to be realistic enough for this because people just be like well this is a really weird space that's not a color that I'm used to to be within a built environment so I looked at the most popular shade of blue from one of the main Australian manufacturers of paints website and I was like okay well that's the values of that shade of blue that a lot of people choose as the most popular so that's the blue (laughs) I'll go with that's not the best that's a compromise from a scientific point of view and I had to put that as part of the paper it was a compromise but it did need to be realistic yeah wow okay so so you've got this door in a room that's blue and we're trying to take out all the nostalgia and memory and all those other things that can come <laughs> into perceiving this door. So what were the results? What did you actually measure and what did you find out? Yeah, so a couple of things. Apart from also recording the indoor environmental quality in there, I did extensive background on the participants too. Mm. So I was trying to understand if their personality and experiences in the past also affected the results because perhaps with scale in particular, imagine if you're grown up in a city that's high density where scale is naturally smaller, is that going to affect you too? So I was looking at where participants spent the most time growing up. I also looked at their personality domains. So that's the big five indicators Um, which is conscientiousness, agreeableness, extroversion, openness. And I'm obviously forgetting one right at the moment, (laughs) which always happens when you try and list things out. So first they did this pre-survey. Then it takes quite a while to actually set up all of these biometric methods too. So putting on electrodes on the scalp, I had 64 electrodes. Each of them has to be in the right space on the head as well, so, Mm. so it's consistent. And then I had sensors on the hands, so they were recording galvanic skin response, so that's your sweat response, Mm -hmm. so that's a good indicator of arousal. 
also looking at respiration. So they wore a band around their sternum, which recorded their breathing, and also their heart rate variability, which is an indicator of stress too. So imagine you're kind of sitting there, you've got, you've got quite a lot of sensors on as well. Then the last thing was self-report. So we had a model and you use, it's a pictorial model as well. So it's based on having three domains within emotion. Mm -hmm. So you've got P for pleasure. So that's kind of like happy to unhappy. A for arousal. So that's feeling quite dull to feeling really jittery. And then the last one, D, is dominance. So feeling quite submissive within the space to feeling really powerful and large within the space. So it wasn't just a happy, sad, kind of one it was more of this this systems one which had been backed up by other research so they were then exposed in randomized order to the different scale conditions so whether it was an enlarged room a smaller room or the control sized room and then there was also the color condition what they were doing within the space was just sitting there nothing more so just sitting down for two minutes, two minutes because we also were were tracking how long is too long to be sitting within the space before you started getting bored as well. Mm. So they were allowed to move around to look their like have their head moving around a little bit to explore the scene as well. And what we found, which was exciting, was that within the scale conditions, when participants were in the in large scale, so in the really big space, and if you think about this, like think of being in a big exam hall mm. or being in an auditorium or something like that. Not, not that it was that large, but think of that's what I mean by enlarged space. Mm-hmm. A type of brain activity occurred in the EEG recording, which is usually involved in concentration performance. So think about when you're writing a, writing a hard report or doing a crossword. And that was interesting because we wouldn't expect that type of brain activity to come out when you're just potentially just relaxing within the space. Mm. So we're like, oh, that's interesting. Like, I wonder if that's going to have a negative effect on performance. And so that's then the follow-up study I've run and am analysing the data of now where they were in the same space again, but this time we made them do a task that actually required that type of brain activity because the idea is, well, is that going to have a detrimental effect? You've got a threshold and you're using up some of that brain activity just being in the enlarged space. And I was like, well, there's obviously applied examples of that in real life already happening with students pre-COVID were sitting in examinations and I remember my own undergraduate examinations sitting them in huge basketball courts. I know I didn't perform my best within those spaces. I'm like, oh, maybe I can I can blame the architecture for my <laughs> examination performance. Yeah, really interesting to see the data. That wasn't the end of it. not supposed to do that, but it is a funny story, isn't it? <laughs> so that's what I'm also analysing. I'm looking at examination performance data from 2011 to 2019 of undergraduate students. I've got about 15,000 data sets where students sat examinations either in a huge exam hall or within a classroom environment to have a look at what Mm. their performance was like. Those results will come out later this year. So that's really exciting. Yeah, right. So does that include data from the same students in various spaces? Yeah, and I should clarify that. So we know that there would be a correlation. Well, we, there's other research out there to suggest this. Also, it's kind of common sense that your coursework score will be indicative of your examination score too because that really kind of comes back to what's your studying style habits and things like that and how much are you invested in doing well within the course. So that's a covariate within it that there is going to be already a relationship between your coursework performance and your examination performance. Mm. But we are, what we're linking is where they then sat the examination. So taking into account this is their coursework performance how does being in an enlarged space versus in the classroom space affect you? Right. Okay. Wow. So, yeah. So what's what has that meant then moving forward? Does this mean that we can just say big spaces slightly more stressful or small spaces slightly more cosy? How can we take this research now and start to understand how it can potentially influence the way that we design? Yeah. I think it's a really exciting time because it's showing that we can measure these things, but with the huge caveat that we are not there yet. This is very basic research. 
I wouldn't want people to go out and change all of these things yet because we just don't have huge studies and we don't have studies from other parts of the world verifying this. Ideally, I'd love to see within my career us getting to almost the clinical trial stage of trialing the impact of these different built environment interventions on people. So yes, it's still very experimental work because as I mentioned, controlled building block approach, only building it up a little bit at a time. And you know, you might be in a blue room and go, oh, that's that's going to increase my happiness. But then you might have an awful co-worker sitting next to you or you might have been bullied in a blue room in the past and have a negative experience about that. So we just don't know enough about those other factors and how they interact with the design elements yet to say we know this definitively. But it, I think it's really exciting because I didn't think coming into this we'd be able to find that just changing something so small mm. and changing it in such a controlled way that we'd be able to detect the difference. The other thing is that the self-reported activity was different to the brain activity and the body response. Oh, wow. So, and that's really important for us because how we evaluate buildings at the moment, we do post-occupancy evaluations and we ask people about it. I'm not saying that's not an important thing and it, it absolutely is a really important thing, but the fact that participants weren't self-reporting that their emotion was changing, yet what we saw in the brain and body were signs that the emotion was changing. It's interesting. This could be happening before we're consciously processing mm. that it's in- impacting us. And so it is really important that we're aware that our design is making a difference, even if people can't tell us that. And perhaps it's different people too. Some people might be more aware of their surrounds and more aware of how that's changing their physiology and how they're thinking than others. Or it might be that our self-report measure that we used just wasn't sensitive enough to detect that, but definitely requires that further research knowing that there's a difference there. Yeah, wow. It's absolutely fascinating. So do you want to just explain for myself and other people who are listening at home, and if you don't know this, we can move on. It's totally fine. But um, what parts of the brain were actually stimulated while people were undergoing this experiment? Yeah, (laughs) no, that's a great question. I'd love it to be such a simple answer too. (laughs) It's really not because the brain is very complex. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so there's all of these different parts of the brain active. I wrote a number of papers on this and one of them was about functional connectivity. So that was actually the parts of the brain talking to one another too. So think of the brain as this whole interconnected series of neurons. So you've got these and just going back to science because Sometimes it's always good to go back to the very beginning here. So you've got these neurons within the brain and it's creating this tiny little electrical message as it sends a signal to the next one. They're all connected within the brain too. So while we have lobes, like we have the frontal cortex and and that's involved in kind of executive decision-making and thinking, so you'd expect that to be active during performance and where you have to think about a report or something like that. You've also got the occipital load at the back, which is about visual information, so receiving that visual stimuli you're getting to. So you would expect that to be active on the sides. You've got the parietal as well for the hearing and the auditory side of things. It is all connected. There were strong, when we look at emotion and with emotion too, it's almost tricky to say, well, what's a positive emotion versus what's a negative emotion? What we need to go back to studies that look at participants or have a what we would think is a happy stimuli. So perhaps that's cute puppies, a sunset versus something that's awful and looking at the brain activity there and then comparing it to other experiments and go oh okay well if that was happy perhaps our results also show that positive happy emotion and that's what I did with blue in our studies too but the activity we were looking at was a high frequency activity known as beta and gamma oscillatory kind of EEG activity and that was within the frontal areas of the brain so that's why involved in the concentration and performance and why following up in other studies yes <laughs> yeah wow that's a, yeah that's fascinating so i guess that just may that would we say that that means that architecture is essentially firing off all different parts of the brain because you have to engage your eyes it's also engaging your sense your touch and your hearing just as you were sort of describing the different senses around the brain, is that like it's all kind of firing off, isn't it? 
Yeah, it is. And you can look at specific areas within the brain too. A follow-up study I'm really interested in doing is having participants with no visual stimuli whatsoever, so they're blindfolded, Mm. and they're just hearing the scale of the space. Because in theory, you would expect it to create the same brain activity because the brain doesn't know. Like it's just getting these signals, whether it's from your eyes or from your ears or from touch. And I'm interested to see if, if you just perhaps it's reverberation of the room, if that's the exact same brain patterns because then it talks to a network being involved in the brain which is just to do with perceiving the environment and perceiving scale of the space. Wow. that's Yeah, I've actually, I find that very interesting because I'll share a story that I have. I did a virtual reality okay. experience with some friends of mine and one of the things that we had to do was like walk along a plank of wood that was supposedly <laughs> you know, 20, 20 floors above yeah. the street. And after we'd finished the whole experience, when we were taking all the gear off and sort of doing a debrief, people who ran it said, oh, what did you think? And we said, oh, you know, the whole thing was amazing. And we said, oh, and it was really cool how you had a fan uh, hitting us with air when we were on that piece of wood really high above the street. Mm-hmm. And they said, there was no fan. And they said, <laughs> we were all just oh, like, what are you talking oh. about? We said, like, we could feel a breeze. And they said, that wasn't us. So, yeah, that was really strange. We were all, we all thought that they'd, they'd set that up to make it feel even more real, but I think our brains might have just created that because there was definitely the sound really of, of, of the wind as well. But, yeah. That's interesting because I've done that experiment too. Mm. We actually did have a fan blowing oh, on right. us to give us since I was wearing shorts on the day. So I, I remember the feeling of it. I also wasn't wearing shoes too, so I could feel, and we walked on a real plank, so I could feel oh, wow. that texture of the plank. Mm-hmm. Because the virtual reality wasn't that good. Yeah. Like the rendering was, you could tell it was virtual reality. You could tell it wasn't real. But for me, it was those other sensory inputs that had clearly started tricking a part of my brain. I was still very much aware that it was not real, but at the same time, my legs started shaking and I was like, Wow, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's incredible, those, those experiences. Like, yeah, I would recommend them highly to anyone who can do them. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. So I guess moving forward, now that you've done this first, the first building block for this research, have you got more plans to continue this research and to delve deeper and to add more information into these sort of tests where you can see what the brain's doing while our bodies are experiencing space? Yeah, so I'm working at the moment on building up complexity and also doing a series of different kind of experiments as well. So I'm lucky enough to be supported for five years on a postdoctoral fellowship to really grow this research in South Australia now. I've just launched a study looking at the impact of law courts. So I'm looking at how just the design within the courtroom might affect judges in because they're, they're having to make decisions and often they're having to make a lot of decisions within a period of time. So I'm really interested to see there how does the built environment affect their ability to make those decisions too. I'm still following up on the cognitive side of things. So I'm looking at working memory and also emotion recognition. So how does being in enlarged and reduced scale spaces affect your ability to decipher whether someone's faces, this is the experimental paradigm, a fear face or a surprise face because they're actually quite difficult to um, tell apart if you go through the experiment. And the other one is a working memory task where you have to remember a string of letters and see if that letter was within the string or not. So again, looking at how that that enlarged scale might affect people. So that's on the really experimental side. So then trying to branch out into more, well, are there examples of this in real life that we can look at and then look at a longitudinal sample of people and see, well, it might be a very small signal because there's so many factors and so much complexity. Can we still find anything there. Yeah, wow. And so while you're developing all of these tests and doing your own research, what have you found are some really interesting other research or some of the other great research that's already been done that can influence architects' decision-making in terms of the benefits to the body or the benefits to the mind that architecture can have? Yeah, I think reading really broadly 
is a great way of just discovering the types of research that's out there. So when I was thinking about how I was, what next steps I'd take, because there wasn't much of this research occurring within Australia or within the world, to be honest. Mm. And I was like, what other area of research would I delve into? I was really interested in the attention research and visual perception, because a lot of that is highly related to architecture and the built environment. And it's just putting on that lens of thinking, oh, okay, if I applied to that to the built environment, how might that translate? So when I'm looking at other research that can help inform me, I, I often look to those fields to be able to help inform me. There's quite a rich history in environmental psychology research. And the only thing is, though, that environmental psychology is it's really broad. So it includes the natural environment, the built environment, landscapes, increasingly climate change research and our perceptions to climate change and how that just the climate change affects our psychology and stress levels. So it is broad, but within there, that's kind of where this area is situated. I call it environmental cognitive neuroscience at the moment because that's where it is. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to add more jargon though to the field because <laughs> I don't want to. Yeah, we've got plenty. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> we do. Mm. And I'm anti-jargon because we should be able to explain things simply but not dumb it down mm. but so everyone can understand so we can tease things apart and get everyone's minds to work at understanding how things do come about and asking really good questions. If I go away from a conference presentation and people don't have questions, that's when I'm the most offended because <laughs> then I feel like I must have not explained it well enough and not excited enough people within the crowd for them to engage with the content. <laughs> well, I think you're doing very well so far. So yeah, no, no complaints. <laughs> no, no complaints from my side. No, that's really fantastic. And I mean, there's definitely some research that people have mentioned. I've seen other conferences and talks around the place about, well, I guess, coming back to hospitals, the hospital design as well. Mm -hmm around the research that's been done into IAQ. Yeah, did you look into much of that former research or did you find something interesting about some of the older research that you were using as the basis for what you were going to do, whether there were some limitations to it or benefits for it so that you could take that into the methods that you used? I've been looking at IAQ at the moment, actually, for the exam work that I'm doing and for the scale work because... I'm trying to understand, and, and I won't until we can run more studies on this, if it's the scale of the space that makes a difference or if it's the indoor environmental quality within the scale of the space that makes a difference. Because if you think of a really large example and often a basketball court, they're very poorly insulated and it's a big space to be able to climate control. So I'm not sure if it is that property of scale that makes the difference or perhaps the temperatures lower or higher above mm. the optimal performance within that space that then makes the difference and I want to tease that apart <laughs> to know is it the design or is it the IEQ IEQ is fantastic though because it is a, a very scientific based literature to go off what I also really enjoy is the sleep literature too so mm. we have sleep lab in UniSA and there's quite a lot of them around I just wasn't aware this was a whole big field of research too and here you can control the lighting so I'm really keen to do some experiments within these sleep spaces because there's no external light sources you can control the lux within those spaces and they're, they're just so highly regulated even things like diet as well so we are controlling for so many variables and I just love controlling for variables so I can go yeah it's that tiny little thing yeah. which is not for everyone and I know it means it's not instantly translatable but We'll get there. <laughs> well, I guess that must be, you know, one of the really important tenets of the research as well as making sure that there's a control. In some of the old research that you've been finding about architecture, do they always have a control built into their research? No. And what was also frustrating, and this is actually broader than just my specific area of research, People don't often report the physical environment where they conducted the research. And in psychology, there was a huge problem with this, what we call the replication crisis, because science decides, right, if you find a finding, it should you should be able to replicate it and it holds. Mm. What was happening was we were finding that some of the studies, the results weren't replicable. So we'd recreate that study within a different space or different lab in a different part of the world and we'd find something 
in contrast. And so then you have a bit of a crisis going, oh, do we know what we know? We need to know what we know. And I wonder if part of that is that when we do scientific publications and we report the methods, we're not always reporting the built environment parameters around what was the colour of the space and was it acoustically sound? I know I've participated in experiments where it's to do with something completely different, like perhaps it's language processing or something like that, and I'm looking at a stimuli on the screen while my brain waves are being recorded, but the room might not be acoustically sound and I can hear people's conversations and people walking past and that's affecting my brain activity. So what are they analysing? Are they analysing what they think they're analysing or not? And look, everything's imperfect and it's it's possible to be perfect with your experimental design. There's always going to be trade-offs and human errors happen, but it is just considering all of those aspects and trying to make it as controlled as possible because the worst thing that could happen is that what you've found is actually a false result and mm. that's not something we can build off. So it is important that we do make sure those studies are controlled and that they are replicable. There's not often a push in science to replicate where there should be because everyone's about, well, let's publish new findings and that there's a bias of what gets published because a new flashy finding is much more exciting to publishers than someone replicating and saying, yep, that holds. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem within the academic publishing system where we need to make sure it's the same incentivization that that is a that's seen as a good thing to do. Yeah. Well, I think there's there's definitely a case for how that's happening in, in architecture as well around maybe the arguments that we're having at the moment around Nat Hers and Seven Stars and people saying mm-hmm. that maybe Passive House is, is really the best way forward. But the control there is how climates are so, so different all around Australia and around the world that maybe what works really fantastic in Europe isn't exactly right for what we have in our dry, arid areas of Australia. So, yeah, having those conversations and actually still being able to say it works really well if you can come close to the controls that we're talking about, which might be super Mm. frosty winters and very humid, hot summers. And if you have that in a different place around the world, maybe you can replicate same results. So it's a really, really important thing to be discussing, I think, moving forward. And then mm-hmm. so with what the work that you're doing now in South Australia, how are you planning to expand all of your research? You said that you've got this postdoctoral program that you're able to work on now, which is really exciting. I mean, you're kind of at the forefront of this in the world in a way. Where is this going to go to next? You know, how far do you think you're going to expand? <laughs> hopefully, hopefully really far. We'll see. I'm I'm on a learning adventure here too. So the first thing is just working with other people and trying to encourage other people to come into this area of research. Also just expanding the public and students understanding that this is a field of research and we want people to be interested in this and excited in doing this. So ideally, I'd love to get to the point within the next five years where I'm building up a lab group of students, honours students and PhD students who are also interested in studying this, who come from different backgrounds too. So like I've come from architecture and I'm in this space, I'd like to see more people do those and be supported to have those moves if they'd like to as well. It's really important that we have both sides represented. So environmental psychology isn't just psychologists looking at it, but it is people that have a different training background in built environment because they'll bring a different perspective and lens to the research too. Mm. So it's hopefully building up this pipeline because the more people that are working on it, the more research we can do, the more building blocks we can put together, which is very exciting to me because I want to be able to really unpick and put together pieces of the puzzle to really understand it. My, my blue sky dream, but this is this is the end of the career, perhaps not even my career, is that we get to the point where we would have psychological guidelines for the design of buildings. So it's just not having barriers at certain heights to keep people safe from falling off a building, but it's what the built environment should do for your brain activity. And that might be performance-driven as well. So you would have different types of spaces different types of individuals so taking into account different personalities and cognitive profiles taking into account the different types of jobs and tasks you might need to do at work and the different types of interactions you need with other people it certainly would never be and I I never would expect 
everything's complex. So it would never be this one size fits all environment, but understanding where you might need to go to a different space for a different function and having the range of spaces available for that. Even if you could understand at some point, oh, okay, I've been in this space for a long time and it's having a negative effect on me. I need to move and I need to go somewhere else to be able to concentrate on this type of task I'm doing. If we could get that, that could be incredible because we could optimise, I'm thinking that we could optimise mental health and performance, which would have a huge impact on like reducing the burden on healthcare systems as well because if everyone's happier and working well and feeling productive, that's terrific. But then ethical questions come into play too. If we can optimise people's performance at their jobs at work, you might think that employers go, right, we're going to build these types of spaces so people are at 100% at all time. Now, that might have a detrimental effect on your mental health as a result of having to work that hard under, under those conditions. So I think with all of this... I keep on questioning, well, who's responsible for the built environment and the ethics behind this? If we do know that a space is having a negative effect on someone's mental health or their performance, who's held accountable, especially if someone something happens to that person or they need medication or they, they need something else? Like who is responsible? Is it the individual? And if they're in a situation or a kind of context where they can't change their built environment, whether that be their home or their office, I think of instances when you're in childcare, when you're in an aged care home and that's having a negative effect, well, who's looking out for those people as well to make sure that they're having a good experience because the built environment needs to be good for everyone. <laughs> yeah, and that's where like, you know, understanding the psychological impacts of the typology as well as the activity are so important and your study in law courts is going to be you know, extremely important in that regard because of the the activity that people are going through, both the people who might be on the judgment side or the litigation side or the defence side, they're all going through their own stresses, I guess, in that regard. So designing for that so that it's as you know, easy on their psychological health as possible is, is really, really important. So I guess, yeah, getting this into the hands of students, does that mean that we might be seeing a book or something coming down coming down the line in a few years? Or uh, is this something that you're going to trial in the University of South Australia first? And how is that going to be rolled out? Excitingly, I wrote a kids article translating my research for a 12 to 15 year old audience, mm. which is about to come out. And I'm really excited for that. <laughs> it comes with a cartoon as well. So I look forward to seeing the cartoon that accompanies it. It was actually far harder than any of the scientific papers I wrote as well. So I got peer reviewed by children. Yeah, wow. <laughs> they were quite They're well. not going to hold back. So I'm looking forward to that coming out and I'm happy to share it because it would be great for other people to share it with the young people in their life because I'm hoping that this is creating this legacy of getting young kids that are at school age interested in doing this down the track. Mm -hmm. So we've got this pipeline of other researchers to carry this on because I, I know I'm only one person and I'd like to see other people join this field of research. The other thing is it would be amazing if this type of work was integrated within courses. So I'm thinking within the architecture degrees, but I'm also thinking in psychology degrees as well to have this environmental cognitive neuroscience understanding so practitioners are aware that it exists and that they can tap into it, but also so other students can go, oh, that's an area, I've got a research question around that and I want to answer that and contribute to that field of research. So I am hoping that it's not just the research, it goes into the education and training side of things so it's creating a sustainable pipeline into the future. Yeah, no, that's really exciting. And I think that's a really digestible way to get that information out there as well and get younger people thinking about, you know, what our buildings do for us and to us beyond just keeping the rain off and the wind out. So yeah, I think that that's really beneficial for people thinking that that architecture's also got more built into it than just specifying paint colours and types of doors <laughs> and windows. Awesome. Well, it's a huge responsibility. It is. It it's, is. Um, well, it's all on your shoulders now. If anything goes wrong, it's uh, it's big. You know, it's on the architect's shoulders. <laughs> I'm just creating the evidence for you. Oh right. Oh god. I thought we were all going to be able to blame you, but no, no, it's still our fault. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Thank you so much. All right. Well, so for anyone who might be interested in in going into the research space, who might be an architect or someone who's just got uh, you know an architectural interests or psychological interests in in architecture, what would your advice be to those people? I really want to encourage it, especially if you don't see other people who have taken that path. 
pathway yet because sometimes it's really tricky if it's not a well-established pathway to see yourself being able to do that. And I struggled with that quite a bit because I couldn't see anyone doing what I wanted to do. And you want to role model yourself against other people sometimes to go, oh, that's the pathway that they took. A lot of the time it's just about asking questions and finding the right people who will support you. I definitely got out of my comfort zone and jumped into a different discipline. I met with a lot of people. I had a lot of conversations and I tried to find my way through. So sometimes you will come across roadblocks, but you have to just keep on pushing and going, oh, I think there's another way through. And so I feel like my career has been very much that of finding alternative ways through. Because when I was in year 12, I specifically wanted to combine my love of science with design. <laughs> I went to the careers counsellor. I was like, well, I want to do science and design. And she's like, it's just not, not possible. You can't <laughs> do both. You need to do one. And because I was quite good at design, naturally I was good at hand drawing. I got a lot of encouragement from people around me like, just go into design, do, do architecture. That really suits you. But I really like science so much. In fact, in Year 12 Design, I was listening to biology podcasts while sketching and doing my design work, which was incredibly nerdy because other, other kids were like listening to the radio and pop songs to help them with their design. But for me, science helped me. So I just want to get it out there that you can go and do a different area because that's what research is about and especially about combining different disciplines. That's where the really exciting stuff happens because you get insights from other fields that other people haven't had because they've not been exposed to those other fields. There definitely are barriers to it still, but I think we can break them down and I think it's becoming increasingly recognised the value of being at the intersection of disciplines. Yeah, no, I think that sounds fascinating, and I've I've spoken to a few people who are so who are interested in doing a PhD and in their particular area where they've got a column A, column B kind of interest, like yourself. And yeah, there are possibilities for people to to jump into do an economics PhD or a science PhD or a uh, anthropology PhD, even if they've got the architecture background and and vice versa. So yeah, I think that's really great advice. And yeah, for anyone else out there who's thinking about it. Yeah, just start plugging away and asking questions and, and expanding that network. But yeah, Isabella, thank you so much for joining me today on the Hearing Architecture podcast. It's been wonderful to hear all about your research. It's so useful for everyone who's trying to design their buildings to help people to make uh, psychological benefits of architecture better along the way. So yeah, thank you so much for being part of this. And yeah, we can't wait to see what you're doing next. So, so thanks again. My pleasure. And I'm sorry I don't have all of the answers yet, but hopefully we will keep on building towards it and create that evidence bank so we really can justify the benefits of good design and why we need architects and people designing our built environments. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much to our guest, postdoctoral research fellow, Dr. Isabella Bauer at the University of South Australia, who is not a registered architect. Thank you so much for sharing stories about your research and how your research can inform the way we design our spaces for the better. We look forward to speaking with you again in the future. Our sponsor, Brickworks, also produce architecture podcasts hosted by Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. If you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy. And the Imagine production team was Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way.
This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance, or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification or advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavors to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.